Question 186, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the States of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the States of Life, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 186. Of those things in which the religious state properly consists, in ten articles. Part 2. Articles 6 through 10. Sixth article. Whether it is requisite for religious perfection that poverty, continence, and obedience should come under a vow. Objection 1. It would seem that it is not requisite for religious perfection that the three aforesaid, namely, poverty, continence, and obedience, should come under a vow. For the school of perfection is founded on the principles laid down by our Lord. Now our Lord, in formulating perfection, in Matthew 19.21, said, If thou wilt be perfect, go, sell all thou hast and give to the poor without any mention of a vow therefore it would seem that a vow is not necessary for the school of religion objection to further a vow is a promise made to god wherefore according to ecclesiastes five three the wise man after saying if thou hast vowed anything to god defer not to pay it, adds at once, for an unfaithful and foolish promise displeaseth him. But when a thing is being actually given, there is no need for a promise. Therefore, it suffices for religious perfection that one keep poverty, continence, and obedience without vowing them. Objection 3. Further, Augustine says, The services we render are more pleasing when we might lawfully not render them, yet do so out of love. Now, it is lawful not to render a service which we have not vowed, whereas it is unlawful if we have vowed to render it. Therefore, seemingly, it is more pleasing to God to keep poverty, continence, and obedience without a vow. Therefore, a vow is not requisite for religious perfection. On the contrary, in the old law, the Nazareans were consecrated by vow according to number 6.2. When a man or woman shall make a vow to be sanctified, and will consecrate themselves to the Lord, etc. Now these were a figure of those who attain the summit of perfection, as a gloss of Gregory states. Confer his commentary on Job 2. Therefore, a vow is requisite for religious perfection. I answer that, it belongs to religious to be in the state of perfection as shown above, in question 174, article 5. Now the state of perfection requires an obligation to whatever belongs to perfection, 
and this obligation consists in binding oneself to God by means of a vow. But it is evident from what has been said in Articles 3, 4, and 5 that poverty, continence, and obedience belong to the perfection of the Christian life. Consequently, the religious state requires that one be bound to these three by vow. Hence Gregory says in his homily 20 on Ezekiel, When a man vows to God all his possessions, all his life, all his knowledge, it is a holocaust. And afterwards he says that this refers to those who renounce the present world. Reply to Objection 1 Our Lord declared that it belongs to the perfection of life that a man follow him, not anyhow, but in such a way as not to turn back. Wherefore he says again in Luke 9.62, No man putting his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And though some of his disciples went back, yet when our Lord asked, in John 6, 68 and 69, Will you also go away? Peter answered for the others, Lord, to whom shall we go? Hence Augustine says in his On the Harmony of the Gospels 2.17 that, As Matthew and Mark relate, Peter and Andrew followed him after drawing their boats onto the beach, not as though they purposed to return, but as following him at his command. Now this unwavering following of Christ is made fast by a vow, wherefore a vow is requisite for religious perfection. Reply to Objection 2 As Gregory says in his commentary on Job 2, religious perfection requires that a man give his whole life to God. But a man cannot actually give God his whole life, because that life taken as a whole is not simultaneous, but successive. Hence, a man cannot give his whole life to God otherwise than by the obligation of a vow. Reply to Objection 3 Among other services that we can lawfully give is our liberty, which is dearer to man than aught else. Consequently, when a man of his own accord deprives himself by vow of the liberty of abstaining from things pertaining to God's service, this is most acceptable to God. Hence Augustine says in his letter 127, Repent not of thy vow, rejoice rather that thou canst no longer do lawfully what thou mightest have done lawfully but to thy own cost. Happy the obligation that compels to better things. Seventh article. Whether it is right to say that religious perfection consists in these three vows. Objection 1. It would seem that it is not right to say that religious perfection consists in these three vows. For the perfection of life consists of inward rather than of outward acts, according to Romans 14.17. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but justice and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
now the religious vow binds a man to things belonging to perfection therefore vows of inward actions such as contemplation love of god and of our neighbor and so forth should pertain to the religious state rather than the vows of poverty continence and obedience which refer to outward actions objection to further the three aforesaid come under the religious vow in so far as they belong to the practice of tending to perfection but there are many other things that religious practice such as abstinence watchings and the like therefore it would seem that these three vows are incorrectly described as pertaining to the state of perfection objection three further by the vow of obedience a man is bound to do according to his superior's command whatever pertains to the practice of perfection therefore the vow of obedience suffices without the other two vows objection four further external goods comprise not only riches but also honors therefore if religious by the vow of poverty renounce earthly riches there should be another vow whereby they may despise worldly honors on the contrary it is stated in the canon on the state of the monk that the keeping of chastity and the renouncing of property are affixed to the monastic rule i answer that the religious state may be considered in three ways first as being a practice of tending to the perfection of charity secondly as quieting the human mind from outward solicitude according to first corinthians seven thirty two i would have you to be without solicitude thirdly as a holocaust whereby a man offers himself and his possessions wholly to god and in corresponding manner the religious state is constituted by these three vows first as regards the practice of perfection a man is required to remove from himself whatever may hinder his affections from tending wholly to god for it is in this that the perfection of charity consists such hindrances are of three kinds first the attachment to external goods which is removed by the vow of poverty secondly the concupiscence of sensible pleasures chief among which are venereal pleasures and these are removed by the vow of continence thirdly the inordinateness of the human will and this is removed by the vow of obedience in like manner the disquiet of worldly solicitude is aroused in man in reference especially to three things first as regards the dispensing of external things and this solicitude is removed from man by the vow of poverty secondly as regards the control of wife and children which is cut away by the vow of continence thirdly as regards the disposal of one's own actions which is eliminated by the vow of obedience whereby a man commits himself to the disposal of another again a holocaust is the offering to god of all that one has according to gregory in his homily twenty on ezekiel
Now man has a threefold good, according to the philosopher in Ethics 1.8. First, the good of external things, which he wholly offers to God by the vow of voluntary poverty. Secondly, the good of his own body, and this good he offers to God especially by the vow of continence, whereby he renounces the greatest bodily pleasures. The third is the good of the soul, which man wholly offers to God by the vow of obedience, whereby he offers God his own will, by which he makes use of all the powers and habits of the soul. Therefore the religious state is fittingly constituted by the three vows. Reply to Objection 1. As stated above in Article 1, the end whereunto the religious vow is directed is the perfection of charity, since all the interior acts of virtue belong to charity as to their mother, according to 1 Corinthians 13.4. Charity is patient, is kind, etc. Hence, the interior acts of virtue, for instance, humility, patience, and so forth, do not come under the religious vow, but this is directed to them as its end. Reply to Objection 2. All other religious observances are directed to the three aforesaid principal vows. For if any of them are ordained for the purpose of procuring a livelihood, such as labor, questing, and so on, they are to be referred to poverty, for the safeguarding of which religious seek a livelihood by these means. Other observances whereby the body is chastised, such as watching, fasting, and the like, are directly ordained for the observance of the vow of continence, and such religious observances as regard human actions whereby a man is directed to the end of religion, namely the love of God and his neighbor, such as reading, prayer, visiting the sick, and the like, are comprised under the vow of obedience that applies to the will, which directs its actions to the end according to the ordering of another person. The distinction of habit belongs to all three vows, as a sign of being bound by them, wherefore the religious habit is given or blessed at the time of profession. Reply to Objection 3. By obedience a man offers to God his will, to which, though all human affairs are subject, yet some are subject to it alone in a special manner, namely human actions, since passions belong also to the sensitive appetite. Wherefore, in order to restrain the passions of carnal pleasures and of external objects of appetite, which hinder the perfection of life, there was need for the vows of continence and poverty. But for the ordering of one's own actions, accordingly as the state of perfection requires, there was need for the vow of obedience. Reply to Objection 4 As the philosopher says in Ethics 4.3, Strictly and truly speaking, honor is not due save to virtue. Since, however, external goods serve instrumentally for certain acts of virtue, the consequence is that a certain honor is given to their excellence, especially by the common people who acknowledge none but outward excellence. Therefore, since religious tend to the perfection of virtue, 
it becomes them not to renounce the honor which God and all holy men accord to virtue, according to Psalm 138.17. But to me, thy friends, O God, are made exceedingly honorable. On the other hand, they renounce the honor that is given to outward excellence by the very fact that they withdraw from a worldly life. Hence no special vow is needed for this. Eighth article. Whether the vow of obedience is the chief of the three religious vows. Objection 1. It would seem that the vow of obedience is not the chief of the three religious vows. For the perfection of the religious life was inaugurated by Christ. Now Christ gave a special counsel of poverty, whereas he is not stated to have given a special counsel of obedience. Therefore, the vow of poverty is greater than the vow of obedience. Objection to. Further, it is written in Ecclesiasticus 26.20 that no price is worthy of a continent soul. Now the vow of that which is more worthy is itself more excellent. Therefore, the vow of continence is more excellent than the vow of obedience. Objection 3. Further, the greater a vow, the more indispensable it would seem to be. Now the vows of poverty and continence are so inseparable from the monastic rule that not even the sovereign pontiff can allow them to be broken, according to a decretal called On the Condition of Monks. Yet he can dispense a religious from obeying his superior. Therefore, it would seem that the vow of obedience is less than the vow of poverty and continence. On the contrary, Gregory says in his commentary on Job 35.14, Obedience is rightly placed before victims, since by victims another's flesh, but by obedience one's own will, is sacrificed. Now the religious vows are holocausts, as stated above in Article 1 and Article 3, Sixth Reply. Therefore, the vow of obedience is the chief of all religious vows. I answer that, the vow of obedience is the chief of the three religious vows, and this for three reasons. First, because by the vow of obedience, man offers God something greater, namely, his own will. For this is of more account than his own body, which he offers God by continence, and then external things, which he offers God by the vow of poverty. Wherefore, that which is done out of obedience is more acceptable to God than that which is done of one's own will, according to the saying of Jerome, in his letter 125 to the monk Rusticus. My words are intended to teach you not to rely on your own judgment, and a little further on he says, You may not do what you will. You must eat what you are bidden to eat. You may possess as much as you receive. Clothe yourself with what is given to you. Hence fasting is not acceptable to God 
if it is done out of one's own will, according to Isaiah 58.3. Behold, in the day of your fast your own will is found. Secondly, because the vow of obedience includes the other vows, but not vice versa. For a religious, though bound by vow to observe continence and poverty, yet these also come under obedience, as well as many other things besides the keeping of continence and poverty. Thirdly, because the vow of obedience extends properly to those acts that are closely connected with the end of religion, and the more closely a thing is connected with the end, the better it is. It follows from this that the vow of obedience is more essential to the religious life. For if a man, without taking a vow of obedience, were to observe, even by vow, voluntary poverty and continence, he would not therefore belong to the religious state, which is to be preferred to virginity observed even by vow. For Augustine says in On Virginity, 46, No one, methinks, would prefer virginity to the monastic life. Translator's note, St. Augustine wrote not Monasterio, but Martyrio. Not Monastery, but Martyrdom. And St. Thomas quotes the passage correctly above. Confer question 124, article 3, and question 152, article 5. Reply to objection 1. The counsel of obedience was included in the very following of Christ, since to obey is to follow another's will. Consequently, it is more pertinent to perfection than the vow of poverty, because as Jerome, commenting on Matthew 19.27, behold we have left all things observes peter added that which is perfect when he said and have followed thee reply to objection to the words quoted mean that continence is to be preferred not to all other acts of virtue but to conjugal chastity or to external riches of gold and silver which are measured by weight translator's note ponderare referring to the Latin ponderatio in the Vulgate, which the Dewey version renders price. Or again, continence is taken in a general sense for abstinence from all evil, as stated above, in question 155, article 4, first reply. Reply to objection 3. The Pope cannot dispense a religious from his vow of obedience so as to release him from obedience to every superior in matters relating to the perfection of life, for he cannot exempt him from obedience to himself. He can, however, exempt him from subjection to a lower superior, but this is not to dispense him from his vow of obedience. Ninth Article whether a religious sins mortally whenever he transgresses the things contained in his rule. Objection 1. It would seem that a religious sins mortally whenever he transgresses the things contained in his rule. For to break a vow is a sin worthy of condemnation, as appears from 1 Timothy 5, 11 and 12, 
where the apostle says that widows who will marry have damnation because they have made void their first faith but religious are bound to a rule by the vows of their profession therefore they sin mortally by transgressing the things contained in their rule objection to further the rule is enjoined upon a religious in the same way as a law now he who transgresses a precept of law sins mortally therefore it would seem that a monk sins mortally if he transgresses the things contained in his rule objection three further contempt involves a mortal sin now whoever repeatedly does what he ought not to do seems to sin from contempt therefore it would seem that a religious sins mortally by frequently transgressing the things contained in his rule on the contrary the religious state is safer than the secular state wherefore gregory at the beginning of his morals compares the secular life to the stormy sea and the religious life to the calm port but if every transgression of the things contained in his rule were to involve a religious in mortal sin the religious life would be fraught with danger on account of its multitude of observances therefore not every transgression of the things contained in the rule is a mortal sin i answer that as stated above in article one first and second replies a thing is contained in the rule in two ways first as the end of the rule for instance things that pertain to the acts of the virtues and the transgression of these as regards those which come under a common precept involves a mortal sin but as regards those which are not included in the common obligation of a precept the transgression thereof does not involve a mortal sin except by reason of contempt because as stated above in article two a religious is not bound to be perfect but to tend to perfection to which the contempt of perfection is opposed secondly a thing is contained in the rule through pertaining to the outward practice such as all external observances to some of which a religious is bound by the vow of his profession now the vow of profession regards chiefly the three things aforesaid namely poverty continence and obedience while all others are directed to these consequently the transgression of these three involves a mortal sin while the transgression of the others does not involve a mortal sin except either by reason of contempt of the rule since this is directly contrary to the profession whereby a man vows to live according to the rule or by reason of a precept whether given orally by a superior or expressed in the rule since this would be to act contrary to the vow of obedience reply to objection one he who professes a rule does not avow to observe all the things contained in the rule but he vows the regular life which consists essentially in the three aforesaid things hence in certain religious orders precaution is taken to profess not the rule but to live according to the rule that is 
to tend to form one's conduct in accordance with the rule as a kind of model, and this is set aside by contempt. Yet greater precaution is observed in some religious orders by professing obedience according to the rule, so that only that which is contrary to a precept of the rule is contrary to the profession, while the transgression or omission of other things binds only under pain of venial sin, because, as stated above in Article 7, Second Reply, such things are dispositions to the chief vows. And venial sin is a disposition to mortal, as stated above in the Pars Prima Secunde, question 88, Article 3, inasmuch as it hinders those things whereby a man is disposed to keep the chief precepts of Christ's law, namely, the precepts of charity. There is also a religious order, that of the friars-preachers, where such like transgressions or omissions do not, by their very nature, involve sin, either mortal or venial. But they bind one to suffer the punishment affixed thereto, because it is in this way that they are bound to observe such things. Nevertheless, they may sin venially or mortally through neglect, concupiscence, or contempt. Reply to Objection 2. Not all the contents of the law are set forth by way of precept, for some are expressed under the form of ordinance or statute binding under pain of a fixed punishment. Accordingly, just as in the civil law the transgression of a legal statute does not always render a man deserving of bodily death, so neither in the law of the church does every ordinance or statute bind under mortal sin, and the same applies to the statutes of the rule. Reply to Objection 3. An action or transgression proceeds from contempt when a man's will refuses to submit to the ordinance of the law or rule, and from this he proceeds to act against the law or rule. On the other hand, he does not sin from contempt, but from some other cause, when he is led to do something against the ordinance of the rule or law through some particular cause, such as concupiscence or anger, even though he often repeat the same kind of sin through the same or some other cause. Thus Augustine says in On Nature and Grace, 29, that not all sins are committed through proud contempt. Nevertheless, the frequent repetition of a sin leads dispositively to contempt, according to the words of Proverbs 18.3. The wicked man, when he has come into the depths of sin, contemneth. Tenth article. Whether a religious sins more grievously than a secular by the same kind of sin. Objection 1. It would seem that a religious does not sin more grievously than a secular by the same kind of sin. For it is written in Second Chronicles 30, verses 18 and 19, The Lord, who is good, will show mercy to all them who with their whole heart seek the Lord God of their fathers, and will not impute it to them that they are not sanctified. Now religious apparently follow the Lord, the God of their fathers, with their whole heart, rather than seculars, who partly give themselves and their possessions to God, 
and reserve part for themselves as gregory says in his homily twenty on ezekiel therefore it would seem that it is less imputed to them if they fall short somewhat of their sanctification objection to further god is less angered at a man's sins if he does some good deeds according to second chronicles nineteen two and three thou helpest the ungodly and thou art joined in friendship with them that hate the lord and therefore thou didst deserve indeed the wrath of the lord but good works are found in thee now religious do more good works than seculars therefore if they commit any sins god is less angry with them objection three further this present life is not carried through without sin according to james three two in many things we all offend therefore if the sins of religious were more grievous than those of seculars you would follow that religious are worse off than seculars and consequently it would not be a wholesome counsel to enter religion on the contrary the greater the evil the more it would seem to be deplored but seemingly the sins of those who are in the state of holiness and perfection are the most deplorable for it is written in jeremiah twenty three nine my heart is broken within me and afterwards in jeremiah twenty three eleven for the prophet and the priest are defiled and in my house i have found their wickedness therefore religious and others who are in the state of perfection other things being equal sin more grievously i answer that a sin committed by a religious may be in three ways more grievous than a like sin committed by a secular first if it be against his religious vow for instance if he be guilty of fornication or theft because by fornication he acts against the vow of continence and by theft against the vow of poverty and not merely against a precept of the divine law secondly if he sin out of contempt because thereby he would seem to be the more ungrateful for the divine favors which have raised him to the state of perfection thus the apostle says in hebrews ten twenty nine that the believer deserveth worse punishments who through contempt tramples under foot the son of god hence the lord complains in jeremiah eleven fifteen. what is the meaning that my beloved hath wrought much wickedness in my house thirdly the sin of a religious may be greater on account of scandal because many take note of his manner of life wherefore it is written in jeremiah twenty three fourteen i have seen the likeness of adulterers and the way of lying in the prophets of jerusalem and they strengthened the hands of the wicked that no man should return from his evil doings on the other hand if a religious not out of contempt but out of weakness or ignorance commit a sin that is not against the vow of his profession without giving scandal for instance if he commit it in secret he sins less grievously in the same kind of sin than a secular because 
his sin if slight is absorbed as it were by his many good works and if it be mortal he more easily recovers from it first because he has a right intention towards god and though it be intercepted for the moment it is easily restored to its former object hence origen commenting on psalm thirty six twenty four when he shall fall he shall not be bruised says in his homily four on psalm thirty six the wicked man if he sin repents not and fails to make amends for his sin but the just man knows how to make amends and recover himself even as he who had said i know not the man shortly afterwards when the lord had looked on him knew to shed most bitter tears and he who from the roof had seen a woman and desired her knew to say i have sinned and done evil before thee secondly he is assisted by his fellow religious to rise again according to ecclesiastes four ten if one fall he shall be supported by the other woe to him that is alone for when he falleth he hath none to lift him up reply to objection one the words quoted refer to things done through weakness or ignorance but not to those that are done out of contempt reply to objection to josephat also to whom these words were addressed sinned not out of contempt but out of a certain weakness of human affection reply to objection three the just sin not easily out of contempt but sometimes they fall into a sin through ignorance or weakness from which they easily arise if however they go so far as to sin out of contempt they become most wicked and incorrigible according to the word of jeremiah two twenty thou hast broken my yoke thou hast burst my bands and thou hast said i will not serve for on every high hill and under every green tree thou didst prostitute thyself hence augustine says in his letter seventy eight from the time i began to serve god even as i scarcely found better men than those who made progress in monasteries so i have not found worse than those who in the monastery have fallen end of question 186 read by michael shane craig lambert lc